All right, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1 this morning. Proverbs chapter 1. And I'm going to read to you verses 20 through 33. Verses 20 to 33 in the great book of Proverbs as penned by the wise man of Israel, the King Solomon, son of David. So verse 20 begins, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long will you simple ones love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke, surely I'll pour out my spirit upon you. I'll make my words known to you, because I have called and you refused. I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies, for the turning of the away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Father, in Jesus' name I pray the church's turn to the word of God, to the wisdom of God provided in your written word, O Lord. I pray we proclaim it rightly and in your sight and by the power of the Holy Spirit lives and reigns in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you want to do? You want to all go outside and see if wisdom's out there proclaiming itself loud, proclaiming herself? Notice wisdom is personified in this section. It's not, it's not precisely God saying, I'll turn away at your calamity, but it's wisdom personified as a woman and certainly an attribute of God. Wisdom is offered to us, and there's really no excuse for not having wisdom. Because wisdom calls aloud outside. Friends, if there's any central message in the book of Proverbs, it's that the life of man is bound up in the knowledge of a man. It has been said, perhaps you've heard it, as a man thinketh, so he is. You know where you find that? In the book of Proverbs. As a man thinketh, so he is. Rene Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Solomon said, as a man thinketh, so he is. The saying is, in fact, also from the book of Proverbs 23.7. It's interesting, though, that in the context of that same chapter, there's a nod to another common saying. You are what you eat. Go see if I'm not mistaken. Chapter 23. They're talking about eating food. And they're talking about a discriminating man eats discriminating food. 
You don't eat just anything. Well, I don't know, maybe you do. But a discriminating man should not. The reader's encouraged to discern what he thinks in the same way a discriminating person decides what to eat. You wouldn't just eat anything. Why would you just think anything? And that's the point that the writer is, is making. If it's good and nourishing, friends, by all means eat it. And if it promotes wisdom and clarity of thought, by all means think it and own it and let it be your own. You know, it's interesting when it talks about, the passage talks about gaining the available wisdom. It's there. Grasp onto it. Love it. Consume it. Don't despise it, and it will be down in you. And I tell a story. Perhaps you've heard me tell it. Long time ago, we first got married. We, we were, it's strange what we did. We left our jobs in Washington, in Washington. We left our jobs in New York City, Karen and I, and we moved here and bought a house. Why they gave a house to people with no jobs, I have no idea. But they did. And we paid the price for that for the first few years, trying to get into work and pay the bills. And every now and then, back in those days, I'd get this little letter in the mail called the foreclosure notice on my house. And I'd get this little letter, and I'd walk around and pray to the Lord, how am I going to get out of this problem? What am I going to do? And family and helped us out a couple of times, and um, but it would crop up again. It was we were really over our heads in debt. And by the way, you know what our house cost? Eighty-five thousand dollars. We thought it was a million. You know why we thought it was a million? Because it was a million in 1985. And I was walking down Crooked Lane one day, and I was praying, and I had that letter, and I brought it to the Lord, and I said, "Get me through this once and for all." And I had God's wisdom down in there. And as I was praying, my soul said to me, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called, for those who are the called according to his purpose. And I had joy in the moment, even in that moment of affliction. And I knew the Lord would not leave me and forsake me because I had wisdom from the Lord down in me. And it did not laugh when my calamity came. It did not mock me. It served me, as the, as the word says that it will. And so put the word of God in there and have it come up when it's needed and serve you. So if it's good and nourishing, eat it. And if it promotes wisdom and clarity of thought, then think it. And I would say that if there is one predominant topic that sums up this book, it is this. Wisdom is the principal thing. Friends, churches ought to be concerned with imparting wisdom. We have the oracles of God. They're entrusted to us. That commission doesn't belong to any but us. Wisdom is the principal thing. Now, we know that that's true because Solomon said elsewhere, wisdom is the principal thing. And he said, get some. And then he says, exclamation point, get wisdom, get understanding, friends. Wisdom is a little different than knowledge because it has to do with understanding. It has to do with actually metabolizing knowledge, if you will, and making it useful for growth. So that, I think, is probably the, the first point, the first most important central theme of the book of Proverbs. If there's a second, almost equally important theme of the book, it's that we 
what we have from today's passage. It is this. Wisdom is not only the central thing, but it's widely available. There's really no shortage. Seems like there's a shortage, doesn't there? I remember back in the 70s, it, it, I first got my license. I was 16 years old. I wanted to cruise the dragon, do things that kids did when they got their licenses. The first thing you want to do is go out and get in some trouble. But um, I threw that out there. That's not for you. Um, there was no gas. We couldn't cruise. We couldn't do anything. It seemed like there was no gas. There really was gas. Remember those days? It seems like that to me with wisdom. It seems like there's not much wisdom, but there is. It cries aloud outside. It's everywhere, in fact. There's no shortage of wisdom. There's no blockade to access to wisdom. Yet, if you've been paying attention these last few years, friends, if you've been paying attention these last few decades, you might agree with me that though wisdom is available, though it's readily accessible according to the word of God, that it still seems to be in dangerously short supply. It's not as though the man on the street is bubbling over with deep thoughts. I know. I talk to everybody. My kids used to get upset with me. They'd go, oh no, someone's coming. Dad's going to talk to him." <laughs> One time we were going down Route 28, me and Karen and the kids... And that was the day when kids wore their pants like really low in the back. Is, is that, I'm glad that trend's over. Is that over? And this kid's running across the street, and he was all bound up. The, the, belt, was around, the belt was around his thighs. And I'm slowing down, and the boys go, oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I rolled down the window. I said, guy, pull up your pants. <laughs> Wisdom, friends. <laughs> There's no shortage. It only seems like there's a shortage. The man on the street doesn't seem to be bubbling over with deep thoughts or even to be aware of like simple things that we discuss all the time. The last two generations will not go down in history as having contributed a great deal to our society's reserve of wise sayings and profitable intellectual pathways. Now, you'll notice if you're following in the notes, I have a parenthetic statement after that. You can't blame the current generation for its downfall. That, that falls on the previous generation that didn't teach them, that didn't impart wisdom, that didn't do their job. There's at least two fields of play where a person gets what he deserves. The first is democracy. That's the definition of democracy. You get the government you deserve. You asked for it, now it's yours. Deal with it. That's what democracy is. The second is in child rearing. There's two, these are two areas, areas rather, of life where the inviolable principle of reaping what we sow becomes demonstrably true in our lives. If we have a weak nation, it's because we've chosen as a nation to be led by weak leaders. If we have foolish and rebellious kids, it's because we have been foolish ourselves with regard to their moral education. We didn't give them the tools. And if there's an exception to this rule, it is that our leaders would strengthen themselves by drinking from the abundant wellspring of eternal truths that cry out in the open squares. And the same would go for our offspring. Sometimes they turn out wise and well in their, on their own. 
I know families with the kids are wiser than the adults. There are exceptions to all of these things. But generally speaking, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. So verse 20 says, wisdom calls aloud outside, and so the writer writes that wisdom calls aloud outside, and there's certainly an implicit reference here to creation. David wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. Wisdom cries aloud outside. The firmament, which is the skies overhead, shows the handiwork of God. Day to day utters speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Friends, wisdom calls aloud outside. And so Solomon, the son, echoes the message of David, the father, in this same thing. Where David makes his appeal to nature and to the skies and to the very cosmos, Solomon makes his appeal to places nearer at home. He speaks of the public square. He writes, she raises her voice in the open square. She cries out on the chief concourses. You know what a concourse is? It can refer to a couple of things. It's, it's probably a public entrance or a square in front of a building where people gather. And you see that a lot, the uh, Agora marketplaces of Europe. And we have things like that somewhat uh, in our country as well. It may also mean simply a large gathering of people, a concourse of people. But whichever thing the writer has in mind, his message is the same. Wisdom is available. It's out there. Seek it. And it's not only available to you, it has been found out by others, even many others. There are wise people about. Uh, you know, we're a small church, but I'm blessed at how so many men are so gifted and so wise and so learned in the Word of God. I'm amazed we have, a, we have such an abundance of that in our church. And so it's not only available, but... Many people have it, and we're told she speaks her words. Friends, wisdom comes to us in words. Wisdom comes to us in words. Wisdom is exchanged from person to person in common speech. Common speech, friends, is a gift of God. God gave us speech. Literacy has always been God's preferred path to knowledge, being able to read and write. You know, I have an aunt. I have an old aunt. And uh, we love her very much. She's, she's quite old now. And she lives by herself in a beautiful home on a pond. And she sort of fancies herself um, an Eastern religion-minded person. And so she said to me one time, she talks about her meditation schedule and how she discovers her inner self through meditation and these kinds of things. And I say, well, you know, what I know about God and the universe and myself, I know through the written word of God. And she belittled that to me. She said, well, that's just words, though. That only feeds your intellect. Now, the reason I bring this up is I've heard evangelicals say this stuff. As though your intellect isn't the guiding force of your spirit. 
what you know, as a man thinketh, the Bible says, so he is. It doesn't say as a man feels deep inside himself, so he is. Your intellect has to guide you, but it's got to have the data. Right? What do they say in computer world? Garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> Literacy has always been God's path to knowledge. And so when my aunt belittled the word and the written word as though that was something less than her sort of emotional feelings, she said to me, I sit there in my backyard and I meditate on the beauty of nature and I become one with the tree. Big, beautiful pine tree in the backyard. I become one with the tree. And I said, that's a wonderful thing, Auntie, but I'm one with Jesus Christ in my experience. And I don't know if that was important to her or not, but it was definitely the end of that conversation. Um, I love trees too, but I don't want to be one with the tree. So literacy has been God's path to knowledge. What's Jesus' nickname? The Word. (laughs) Words, friends. The Hebrew people have been the most continuously literate group of people in all of civilization. And for them, literacy was common among them. Universal literacy was for the Hebrew people an explicit order of Almighty God to their people. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, very famously we hear this from Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. And then listen to this. And you shall write them. It's literacy. Everyone had to write. Not just an intellectual elite. Not among the people of God. Everyone had to write. We are the leaders of universal literacy. The Protestant Reformation brought it back to the nations. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There wasn't like a town writer that went around writing on everybody's houses. You had to write on your own house. Your parents had to teach you how to read and how to write. Even when you were in Egypt, under the leadership of a a godless man. So this commandment was given in the time of Moses some 3,500 years ago. 1,500 years before Jesus' time, Moses said this. Surely, friends, they were a people, albeit a tribal and nomadic people, for whom reading and writing was a universal expectation. No, it's about intellect. It's always about intellect. I've always told you that. Faith increases mental capacity. It doesn't decrease it. God left us with a coherent written copy of his will and his expectations for his people, and the people of God were always required to read it for themselves and to memorize it. So literacy, friends was a foundation stone, really, of all civilization, going back to the most ancient societies of men. I'm not disputing that. 
But it's this focus on universal literacy that was always the mark of the people of God. You know why they call the ages the Dark Ages? From somewhere around uh, 800, people dispute the dates, but for hundreds of years between uh, medieval times and modern times, which we, uh, which we date at beginning at 1517 when Luther hung the theses, the Dark Ages are the ages of illiteracy. They're the the ages when people could not read the word of God for themselves and so were by definition in darkness. Universal literacy is always the the mark and goal of the people of God. That's why during the Reformation years, 16th and 17th centuries, the Bible translations in common languages were being produced and distributed, even against papal prohibitions. The Pope was against this. People were losing their heads for doing this. Why? The Bible said from the beginning that everyone must read it. If it's in a foreign language, how was that accomplished? God provided these scholars to make it available again for us. You know, in Jesus' time, the Hebrew Bible was already written for 200 years in the Greek language. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament, already written. Jesus never complained about it. He never said, don't read that dirty pagan Greek Bible. You don't hear one word of that. The people all read it. The whole New Testament's written in Greek and not Hebrew. Reading the Word of God for oneself is a basic right and privilege commanded by God to be a gift to a wisdom-hungry people. Friends, get hungry for the Word of God. All throughout the Scriptures, there are commandments to read and to write down the things of God. The Lord said this plainly. to the Apostle John in the cave at Patmos. He said, blessed is he who reads. Go look it up. Who reads those things written in the book. And then the Lord said to him, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, those are letters. (laughs) The first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the churches. Why? Because they know how to read. So despite the decree of governing authorities of the time, from capricious kings to corrupt popes and clergy, the people of God wrote. They copied. They printed. They also had a printing press, which was a new adaptation, which helped this process out. They distributed the word to the nations in every known language. Many were punished for doing so, most famously. We talk about it at our Reformation Fair was John Huss of Bohemia. He's burned at the stake, translating the Bible into the Bohemian language. Common tongue. William Tyndale suffered the same fate a hundred years later in England for doing so, writing the Bible in English. Before him was John Wycliffe, who also uh, had a version of the Bible in English, but they didn't get to him in his lifetime, so he was posthumously exhumed and his bones burned and scattered, being poured out into the River Swift in 1380. They, didn't, they weren't able to punish him for doing it in his lifetime, so several years after he died, they went and dug up his bones and punished his bones. That's how hated the practice was, that the word of God would go out to common people. And you know why it went out? Because wisdom was crying out there to get out. It was trying to get out. It was crying aloud in the open squares. Literacy was championed by the Puritans of England and New England. John Eliot, ever hear of him? He's from Massachusetts. 
Lived in Roxbury. It was a different place at the time. In fact, it was a, it was a frontier. <laughs> it was a woods. No, there was no uh, traffic jams in those days. Roxbury, Massachusetts. He was famously called the Apostle to the Indians. He developed an alphabet for the Algonquin people. You know, the, uh, the Native Americans were, were great nations. They were, they were great people. But until very late in their development, they were illiterate. They had no alphabet. They had no written form of their language, friends. They had signs and sort of like a Chinese form of language with signs that meant different things, but they had no written language. Perhaps you heard a sequoia, a Cherokee, right? Developed a, um, a language for the Cherokee people. Um, in the mid-1800s, though, they were here for thousands of years. Well, the Algonquin people of Massachusetts and upstate New York had no written language, and John Eliot wanted to bring them the gospel. So he developed an alphabet for the Algonquin tribe, giving them a gift of a written form of their own native tongue. He taught them how to write their own language. And he compiled a dictionary for them. And he translated the entire Bible into the written form of the Algonquin language. And then he preached it to them from their own language and led them to Christ. Friends, all men are created equal. Don't ever doubt that. But not all cultures are created equal. Our much maligned Western culture has contributed much to civilization and the advancement of mankind, and that's because of the force of Christianity that spawned it and empowered it. Consider America. Consider the contributions. We're a much maligned nation today, even by factions within our nation. I just want to bring out a couple of things to you that we've contributed to the world. Maybe you hadn't thought about it. We've been... Maligned as a people in our time, most of that for sins of the past that have been atoned for, friends, in blood. There's yet much that our culture and our heritage has contributed to mankind across the globe. Much like John Eliot's priceless contribution to the Algonquin people, a gift that their culture never could have produced on their own, America has offered other such advances and amenities to the whole world. How about some of the unimaginable inventions. You ever hear of the telegraph? That used to be a great thing. I haven't used it lately. How about the phonograph? Harnessing of electricity and electric light bulbs, airplanes that soar overhead and then across continents and then across oceans. Willis Carrier invented air conditioning. He was an American. And the flushing toilet was created by none other than businessman Thomas Crapper. I didn't make this stuff up. He was an Englishman, friends. But it was widely made available indoors by a New Jersey plumber named Richard Crane, whose mansion and homestead is open to the public viewing in Ipswich, Massachusetts, on the beautiful Crane Beach. So go up and see it. Karen and I were up there a few years ago. American ingenuity created assembly line innovation that made the automobile accessible to everyone. There were automobiles, but if they weren't produced cheaply, you couldn't have one. Moonshots landed several men on the, men on the lunar surface. Friends, America created baseball, football, and basketball. 
How about jazz, blues, and rock and roll, radio, television, computers, the internet, not to mention democratic republicanism that actually works. Worked for 250 years, or as Dave keeps reminding me, 245 years, right Dave? And let's not forget that America defended civilization from totalitarianism twice in the same century. I think we've got a pretty good resume. That's my patriotic speech for the morning. So lest you think the word of God is useful only for doctrine and worship practices, think again. It's a biblical worldview that a society grasped onto that is the great impetus for breaking barriers in every area of life. Wisdom begins with one kernel of truth, and that kernel is, I am, saith the Lord. He exists, and he is who he is, and he makes no apology. He just declares that he's there, and he's real, and he's God, and you're not. All knowledge, life-giving wisdom, and creative genius is bound up in the one reality that God is who the scriptures reveal him to be. And that is a sad fact for some people. That's why the scripture may say, in the beginning was the word. Even the name of Christ speaks to literacy. He's the word, friends. He's the living word, the way, the truth, the life. And out of him flow all of wisdom. Out of godly wisdom flows the great creative nature of God himself. Hence our advanced civilization. Friends, the Protestant nations are the most advanced civilizations in the world. Imagine America coming to prominence so late in the game. How did that happen? It happened because of our founding in wisdom, in recognition, in the sovereignty of God, and that wisdom and language and literacy were the gifts of God to man, and we harnessed those things. But our world, our civilization, has forgotten the origins of truth. There's actually very famously a politician recently said we don't need farms anymore because we have grocery stores. Friends, that shows a lack of wisdom. That's why we see the crumbling of society around us. We're like little children who cannot see beyond our immediate physical needs and carnal desires. The knowledge is there, friends, but it has to be grasped. But it's been despised. The Bible def definition of a man who hates knowledge is the fool. The fool hates knowledge, and so I've entitled the sermon. And so the writer asks the question, since we, uh, that we have to ask our society today, how long will you simple ones love your simplicity? Verse 22 says, scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Seen anything of scorning today? We see a lot of it lately. Scorning of everything that we once thought were important things. So Solomon tells us plainly why there's so little wisdom around us and so many fools. It's because they hate knowledge. It's there, but it's despised. Knowledge, which begins with knowledge of God, the light of reason, the ability to think and to calculate and to discern, these are the gifts of God. They're the gifts given to every person at conception. I want to develop this point to some extent for you this morning. Our gospel makes this fact plain. We read of Christ the living word. And then what does John write? 
That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. There's an implicit understanding of God in every person ever born. Christ is the word. Christ is the light. Light is knowledge. And knowledge is a gift to everyone coming into the world. That's every person ever born, friends. But wisdom has to be grasped. It's sort of like the manna out there on the, on the prairie, on the plain, on the grass. The manna's out there. But it has to be collected. It doesn't have to be earned, friends, but it does have to be exercised. The muscle is there, but the muscle needs development. And who's this scorner the proverb speaks of? The scorner is every person who has despised the gift. And where does the hatred come from, friends? It comes from whatever personal or carnal or idolatrous impulse that resides in an individual and animates within him the impulse to cling to what is evil and to hate what is good. Paul lays it out for us to the Romans. He wrote this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's us. God's invisible attributes are invisible, but yet they're clearly seen. And what does he mean by that? By clearly seen, he means understood. They're understood by the things that are made. Even the nature of God, his eternal power and Godhead, they're in us at birth, friends. And he says, so men are without excuse for denying God, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Futility of thought, friends. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, the light went out. You can't keep saying to God, get out, and expect the light to stay on. Goes out. The scorner blew out the light in his own mind, in his own spirit. We're born with the gift of God. It's this gift of light, of understanding. It's a gift of sight and knowledge of the first, the only essential thing, and that is that God is God. Everything else, all other knowledge emanates from that one truth. He's invisible yet knowable. He's enigmatic yet understandable. He's worthy of recognition and gratitude. He's long-suffering, but make no mistake, friends, a man can only despise the gift of God so long before the Almighty puts out their inner light and turns out the scorner into outer darkness. And their foolish hearts were darkened, Paul wrote. I've always said, since I've been a Christian, we've lived in a Romans 1 world. I can't see it any other way. It's, it's an unreasonable existence. So what does the fool do when his light is expunged and when his ability to reason is rescinded and when his recognition of deity is discarded? What does he do? What does the guy do when he loses reason and light and knowledge? He professes wisdom. He just says, I'm smart. Everyone knows he's not. Well, not everyone. God will call him a fool, but he'll call himself wise. His access to wisdom is gone. The fruitfulness of thought became futility of thought. He's eating the fruit of his own way. That would have been another good uh, verse to pull out and entitle the sermon. 
They're eating the fruit of their own way. So we read this from Romans again. Professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, just saying I'm smart was good enough for the fool. And they did it by exchanging incorruptible glory into corruptible idolatry. They imagined that the glory of creation, like I told you about my aunt, the glory of creation, that man and birds and beasts and creeping things, they imagined that those things are the glory of the Creator. Friends, God stands over His creation. He will not be identified with it. He doesn't want us to create things and say, that represents God. It's called idolatry. God hates it. It's the second commandment. So they profess to be wise, though they're not. So if you glory in the things around you and not in the creator of the things around you, you're in darkness. You've dispelled wisdom. And it's a darkness imposed upon you from God. He takes back the gift if it's despised. He's very gracious. He lets a person or a nation despise for a time. It's called long-suffering. But then he says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Genesis 6.3. That brings us back, right? Friends, we don't have an abundance of wisdom today, but we have an, an abundance of professors. We have an abundance of fools who profess to know what they simply cannot know. They received their overpriced degrees from institutions that lost their souls a century ago. Do you know that in 1720, Jonathan Edwards of New England would not send his son to Harvard because he thought Harvard had lost its way? (laughs) He sent him to Yale, which was called New Jersey College, and it was in the basement of the pastor's house with 19 kids. That was Yale, eventually called Yale. And so he sent him there. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. New Jersey's Princeton. It was Connecticut. I did mix up Princeton. and Yeah, but, you know, you can, you can lump in um, Princeton. I'm glad you told me that so I can correct it now and not see the sermon later and go, why didn't someone tell me? Um, they lost their souls because they hated knowledge. They did not know that you cannot love knowledge and at the same time hate the author of knowledge. I like what you said. I just don't like you that much. You cannot find the end of a thing, the omega, without acknowledging the beginning, the alpha. Our society is a living object lesson of a nation that's lost its soul. What's one of the very first lessons of Scripture from Genesis, friends? The very first lessons of wisdom. God created them male and female. It's very basic. You don't get a choice in this. And I want to tell you, I have great sympathy for people who are confused in this area. But we cannot be confused. Have you noticed the real epidemic of our times? We're confused about basic things. Gender. Pink and blue. We live in the most gender-confused moment in history. Our society of scorners never imagined that when they gave up on God, they gave up on knowledge. They didn't know that. They thought they took a smart path. Quaint, old-fashioned people are the ones that have faith in God and belief in God, right? 
not sophisticated intellectuals like us. God taught this lesson once before, way back in our primeval history in the time of Noah, when men became abominable, idolatrous people, and when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually. Remember that from Genesis? And so God taught the lesson of creation once more. He already had the basics, so he didn't start from nothing, ex nihilo this time. He started with something. And he taught the world that living things are of a binary nature. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, we read, and Noah famously built the ark. And then they filled it according to the binary nature of all life. And so God said to Noah, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. You know, a long time ago, my father-in-law said something to me. Now, I'm not talking about a man that's grounded in Scripture. But he figured out something for himself. And he thought that homosexuality and abortion were bad things. You don't have to be a Christian to think that, right? But confusing of the genders and killing the unborn were bad things. And his reasoning was this. If you take either of them to its logical conclusion, there's no more human race. You need male and female, and then you have to not kill the offspring. Someone who still had the light of reason in his mind. You see what I'm saying? Deny the first and essential truth and every other reality falls to dust with the futility, with the futile thoughts of self-proclaimed wise men. The biblical definition of self-proclaimed wise man is fool. You, You ever hear those who are wise in their own eyes? It says that throughout the scriptures. Friends, if you're the only one that thinks you're smart, you're probably not. So you got to get someone else to agree with you. (laughs) But friends, when you wander like that, there's a way back, but it's it's a one-way street. The risen Christ said it plainly to the churches. He said, return to your first love and do the first works. Revelation, right? It was the way back for Noah's world. It's the way back for ours. Return to your first love and do the first works. It's the commission of the church, friends. You know, I want to give you an example. I think about it. It's not fully baked, but I'm going to to try it anyway. Um, You know, today we have counselors, we have psychologists, and we have our church counselors. And we're told if someone comes to us who's gender confused, right? Someone born a a man who thinks he's a woman, right? Well, what he identifies that, we have to respect and go along with that and help him along. But I would ask you this, and I would give you this example. Let's say you're a psychologist and you're in your office and you've got a patient that comes in. And she's 36 years old and she's five foot six, and she weighs 87 pounds, and her bones are sticking out all over the place, and she's pallid and unhealthy, 
just to look at. And the psychologist says to her, young lady, why, why won't you eat? And she says, well, it's because I'm fat. Now, you know what I'm talking about, right? This happens. They call it anorexia. Well, it's because I'm fat. He's, he's looking at her. He can see she's not. He's weighed her. He knows she's not. Her organs are starving and dying and need nourishment. But alas, she identifies as fat, so I have no way to say otherwise. So you go along with it. Of course you wouldn't do that. That would, almost, that would, be, that would be akin to accessory to murder. It's a terrible thing. You say to her, I understand that there's a confusion in you in a certain way, but I'm here to tell you you're wrong, and I want to help you see that you're wrong about yourself, and I want to bring you back to a healthy place. Any compassionate doctor would do that. And now we've got parents who are told not to do that with their own children. The most basic lesson of wisdom. We're a binary culture. We think we can jettison that and come out smart and blessed on the other end. You know, God's very protective of his creation. He likes it the way he made it. He don't want us to fix it. The way back is one way. Return to your first love. Do the first works. Paul said it this way to the people of ancient Athens. He said, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so he wrote to the Ephesians of this very thing, another church. And, I, and so I preach it to you, what Paul wrote that to them. To me who am less than least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God and created all things, or rather who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities. The commission of the church is to reveal to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places and in the earth the reality of the truth of the God of Scripture. That's our job. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, it's the eternal purpose of the church to preach truth to power. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Faith comes with a confidence that it's true. You're not just left out there waffling in it all the time. Christ is with us and in us. And so let this very thing be our mission and purpose. What's our mission and purpose? That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers. It's time for the church to speak truth to power. A few years ago, I read a book by Al Mohler. We must not be silent. Friends, have the conversation. You know, when it, back in the Lincoln administration, when they were talking about slavery, the nation was trying to deal with the slave problem. It was a problem, right? And guess what? It's still a problem. 
Some people don't think we handled it well enough as a nation. But Lincoln said, you can't talk anymore. Who are you going to talk to? He said, I can't talk about slavery in the North because they don't have it in the North. I can't talk about in the South because they have it in the South. I can't talk about it in the halls of Congress because that's bringing morality into politics. And I can't talk about it in the pulpit because that's bringing politics into religion. Friends, they would have us shut up about everything. And it's always been that way. But men have to speak up. We must not be silent, Al Mohler said. And he made the point. It was about all this gender stuff. Don't be silent. You know, I brought it up to a, a guy the other day, just a working guy that pours concrete, talk about that very thing. Because the man on the street doesn't know these things are embroiled and r- rampant in our culture. He doesn't even know it's a discussion. And I brought it up. He said, no, no, I'm good. I'm good with what I already know. People are male and female, and that's it. I mean, didn't even know. I was blessed that he didn't know. I wish he knew a little more about other things, but didn't even know it was a conversation today. It's huge. Journalists presume, and friends, journalists dream that their function is to speak truth to power. They gave that up generations ago. It's not their mission. It's the mission of the church. The church has been entrusted with the oracles of God, not the media, not the mobs, not politicians, and not the parachurch. The church has been entrusted with that. If we're called to anything, it is to speak. And for the Christian, knowledge precedes mission. Confidence of faith emerges out of knowledge of truth. They always, you know the old adage, don't speak about politics and religion? Friends, I don't know much about anything else. And I don't like to be that quiet. No, we have some, we have some gatherings we go to, Karen and I, old friends, mostly a bunch of people who would not agree with us about religious matters or political matters. I refuse to be silent about those things. But I don't hate the person for disagreeing with me, though. I'm not mad at him if he out-argues me on a point. I stay with it. I strive, and I rehearse to do better the next time. But I won't be silent about it. And if I'm told to, I'm, I say things like, I, well, let's go to my house. It's a free speech zone. You can talk at my house. If you don't want me talking at your house, I won't come. But you're invited to my house so we can have a conversation. <laughs> Happens every Thanksgiving at my house. It's 30, 40 people. All of a sudden, someone has the view that other people don't like us. It's a free speech zone. I think we can all get along and still talk about things, even big things. And I think most people agree with the obvious down-to-earth things, like the guy pouring concrete. He knew that men come in male and female, that people come in male and female. So if we're called to anything, friends, as the church, it's to speak. But for the Christian, knowledge precedes mission. you got to know something first. I want to be a teaching church. Confidence of faith emerges out of knowledge of truth. Let the church be a teaching church, or we too will suffer the curse of separation. Verses 25 through 32, Solomon writes, Because you disdained all my counsel, would have none of my rebuke, I will also laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress comes and anguish come upon you, 
Then they'll call on me and I will not answer, and they'll seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But then he says this, because Solomon, like every good preacher, wants to end on a high note. Verse 33, whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Aren't you glad he said that? Friends, we may reach the world with our message or we may not. We may speak to powers and principalities and they may listen to us or they may not. But as one patriarch once said, I'm going to say it with him, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And that means speaking up in a nation of founders who was so wise to make that among the first innumerable rights of our Bill of Rights. You can speak. When they tell you to shut up, it doesn't matter. You can speak. You have a right. Ordained by our Creator. And commissioned by God, frankly. We may reach the world with our message, or we may not. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Friends, the Protestant Reformation was a movement to fight for you to have the written word in your hand, in your house, with your family. So put it out there on the supper table and have readings from it when you're thanking God. That's a, that's a privilege that was died for. And let's not lose it. Exercise it. And I'm going to close this uh, with this precious example of God singling out of his people, of him surgically removing his own people from the curse imposed upon the world. You may remember back in the time of the ten plagues, Still in Egypt, Exodus, 1,500 years before Christ, when we read this from the book of Exodus, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness on all the land of Egypt. Do you remember this? The plague of darkness. Three days it lasted, and it said they did not see one another. That's how dark it was. They couldn't even see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place. Where would you go? You'd trip. He didn't rise from his place for three days. And then we read this, but the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord in the light with the lights on. Plus, we're getting this generator system to keep going. We live in a time of darkness, friends, great darkness. But I see no reason why the lights can't be on in our homes and in our hearts. It's the blessing of God to his people. It's always been. Father, in Jesus' name, let us reap the available wisdom. Let us reap the available wisdom. Let us speak the proclaimed truths of God's written word. Amen.